So uh, let me just give you the shape of what we're going to aim for this afternoon. So we're going to take, it's actually, we, we've got now three contributors. We've got Claude with us as well. Um, we th I thought it was really important to have an American voice. So Claude has brilliantly stepped in. So we're going to do a kind of a one-minute introduction of who the three of us are and why we're here. Then I'm, I'm planning to speak. I'm going to try and keep it to 20 minutes, giving a broad overview of how we might think as Christians about politics. And then I'm going to hand over to Greg and to Claude. So these guys have got much more kind of, I can talk in theory, these guys are actually doing much more in practice. So for Greg to talk about what being a Christian and looks like in the political situation of South Africa, with all the complexity of that, and then for Claude to talk about that with his um, much, 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 much greater experience than us in terms of actually doing the stuff uh, here in, in, in DC. So, and then that should le leave us with 10 minutes or so for Q&A. So is, is that okay? Is that fairly clear? So uh, why I'm here, why am I here? Because PJ asked me to do the session. Um, so my, my background is that I, I did a, as part of my master, my thesis for my master's degree was on church and politics. So ever since doing that, I've kind of got lumped with talking about this stuff. So I think that's really why I got asked to do it. Uh, my name is Matt Hosier. I lead a church in the south coast of the UK. And um, just love being here with you guys. It's fantastic to be at Covenant Life. Really enjoying this week. Great privilege to be here. Uh, married to Grace, who's meant to be in here. There she is, lurking at the back. And uh, that's true commitment, coming to hear your husband. And we have four daughters, the oldest of whom is here. because she's, she's doing a five-month internship down at Moorhead City with Donny. And she's here this week serving. And we've got three younger daughters as well. So that's me, Greg. Hi, everyone. I'm Greg, um, leader church in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, and being forced to engage with a number of these issues because our country is a very interesting place to live. Um, we have a very diverse church with many, many different political views expressed within our congregation. And so as a leadership team, we've had to really work out how we're going to navigate some of the challenges, which I'll uh, tell you about in a little while. Brilliant. I'm Claude Allen, a member here at Covenant Life Church, and for the last 25 years I've worked really in the public sector, state, federal, government, and now on the outside serving a lot of people who are working in both national, international, and state and local government. Fantastic. Who here is actually from Covenant Life? Wow. So I'm very aware that you guys are in a highly political area and there's guys in the church who work in government and all that kind of stuff, so, um, so, so just you be aware that I'm aware of that, and Claude can answer the questions which I can't possibly, <laughs> can't possibly answer. Right, let's let's go. So uh, Andrew's already alluded to this in his session. In the in the UK, there's a whole number of different political parties. The two big ones historically over the last century have been the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. But there's a party called the Liberal Democrats, and historically, actually, the Liberals were the big party. So it used to be the Conservatives and the Liberals, and the Liberals were often in government. It's a smaller party now, but still a significant party. And uh, Tim Farron, this is the, just a screenshot from the BBC website yesterday. Tim Farron has stepped down as leader of the Liberal Democrats after the election. In a statement, he said he was torn between living as a faithful Christian and serving as a political leader. I was actually at college with, with Tim, so I know him a little bit, and uh, he was hounded through the election campaign, particularly about how, the question he kept asking was, is gay sex a sin? And he kept running and running and running from the question, and in the end he said, gay sex isn't a sin, and I think subsequently he's kind of, well, he's just come to the place where he thinks he can't handle 
being a Christian and having to try and answer those questions, and he's had to step down. So this is my context coming from the UK, where we are a secular, an increasingly secular society, and where what it means to be involved in the public sphere as a Christian becomes increasingly complex and increasingly confrontational. So that, that's the context which, which I'm coming from. The situation that Greg and Claude are in would be somewhat different, uh, although there'd obviously be overlaps as well. So, But we are all shaped by our context. So in terms of how I speak and would think about these things, I'm thinking about this kind of reality that um, a leader of a major political party is saying he can't do that because of his Christian faith. Now, I, I'll try and give a quick overview of how we might think about politics and religion. Basically, there are two broad perspectives. So the first one is a more negative view, which sees politics as necessary because of sin. So you need to have government, you need to have a state in order to con contain sin. Without it, sin would just run wild, there'd be anarchy, be chaos in the streets. But politics itself is always compromised by sin. And if there hadn't been a fall, then you wouldn't really need politics. You wouldn't need a government, you wouldn't need a state. The whole apparatus of government, of politics of the state exists because we are sinners and sin has to be contained. And the way, to, the way that Augustine summed this up was to look at the example of Cain, that Cain was the first politician. He was told in Genesis he was the first builder of a city, and politics happens in cities. So Cain was the first politician. Cain was also the first murderer, that he killed his brother. And ever since, politics and murder have gone hand in hand. <laughs> and that gives a kind of a negative uh, view of how you might think about politics. And that kind of Augustinian, slightly negative view would be reflected in, in other significant leaders. So Martin Luther would reflect this more kind of neg negative view, which would see serving in government, serving in politics. It's something you do as a faithful Christian, but you do it kind of with, almost with a kind of a sorrow because you just recognize the whole thing exists because of, of sin. So one of Luther's famous quips, and he made so many, was this, if you see there is lack of a hangman, offer your services and seek office. What the Christian does, the Christian serves. That's what they do in the state, but the state fundamentally is a temporary thing which is necessary because of sin and compromised because of sin. The church should keep out of politics. The work, work of the church is mission and discipleship. The church exists in a different sphere from the world of the state to the world of politics. That's a more negative view. More positive view, which would, in terms of big names from the past, would be more perhaps of a kind of a the view of a Calvin, that kind of view, is that even if the fall hadn't happened, there would still be a state. There would still be governments, there would still be politics. And actually the new age, the age which is going to come when Christ returns, will be political because the city of God will come to earth. Cities are where politics happens. There's going to be a king who reigns over that city and over the whole earth. And so the new age itself will be in some way political. And so politics and the state and government now are not there because of the fall, but actually would have uh, are there because that's how God always intended for things to be. And those are qu two quite distinct views, that negative view and that positive view, and it affects how you might think about interacting with the, with the political world. Now, I think you, you can pull these, those things through t together to some extent. So my, where I kind of personally sit a li little bit more is both positive and negative. So negatively... Just don't expect too much from politicians. The world has fallen. Politicians are sinners like the rest of us, and so you expect politicians. If p politicians are corrupt and do things they shouldn't, well, 
so what? I mean, who's surprised? They're people. That's what people do. So there's that kind of realistic, it's like kind of slightly pessimistic assumption. But at the same time, recognizing that God is sovereign, which means he's also sovereign over politics and he's sovereign over politicians, and God can and does work through the state. So I would define my position as a kind of an optimistic realism um, that my salvation is not in politics, but I don't see politics and the state as something I'm opposed to as an enemy, but actually something that God in some way works through. Now, it's helpful, I think, to try and work out where you are politically and theolog theologically and, and wh why you might be where you are. Um, Andrew Wilson and myself and a few other guys a number of years ago were, were doing lots of work on this, and we kept trying to draw a diagram to help people work out where they sat theologically and politically, and we spent about a year doing it and couldn't do it. And the reason was because we were working on one axis, and then Tim Keller published Centre Church, and he put another axis in, and suddenly it made sense. So uh, <coughs> let me just talk you through this, and just where are you and why are you there? So the way that Keller described this, of course, Keller thinks you should be right in the centre, because as Andrew said, I'm afraid that's as big as we can get. I can, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk through the, um, the terms, and we can email it out. As Andrew said, Keller's always, the Keller position is the center position. The center position is Keller's position by default, so that's where you, where you should be. Um, <laughs> so this way is where we think we should be active in influencing culture. This side says we should be passive, not really involved in influencing culture. This bottom half emphasizes that there's little common grace, that God isn't really that involved in the world other than in the church. This side would, uh, would emphasize there's lots of common grace, that God makes his grace known in all kinds of ways, uh, above and beyond specific saving grace. That there's grace given to human beings in all kinds of settings outside the church. So where do you sit and why? Now, Keller calls this the relevance quadrant, and at the bottom end would be kind of seeker-sensitive, that uh, you think God is... His grace is widely available in the earth and we want to be active in influencing culture and so we seek to connect with people and uh, make the barriers to church low. And at the kind of the near end, that would be just might be doing Sundays in a way which is easier for unbelievers to come into, but tends to develop into a social gospel. So you increasingly emphasize doing good works and that becomes what the church is all about. Um, so in your term, we don't use this terminology in the UK, but Keller's put the mainline churches up, up there and that kind of end of things. Then this quadrant is what he calls a transformationist, and this would reflect more of a kind of a Calvinist perspective. I think uh, some of you will be familiar with Abraham Kuyper, who said there's not one square inch of all of creation over which Jesus Christ does not declare mine. And that means that as Christians, we're to be involved in all of culture, involved in the state, involved in politics. And in American terms, again, this would be kind of where the religious right has more tended to operate. Uh, this quadrant over here, the counterculturists, this would reflect a more Anabaptist type view of the world where you actually want, you don't want to have too much to do with the world. You emphasize the distinctiveness of the church. And at the kind of far end, Keller's put the Amish, so they would be a great example of an Anabaptist community which seek to live separate lives with a very distinct commu community, a very distinct culture, very distinct values, and as far as possible, as separate from the world as possible. There's not much expectation of God's grace at work amongst those who aren't part of the community of God's people, 
and no interest at all in influencing culture. No, we just, we're called as the people of God and we live distinctly as the people of God. And then this uh, quadrant up here is, Keller's called Two Kingdoms. It's a more Lutheran uh, perspective, although a whole bunch, especially in the States, a whole bunch of Calvinist guys, which are these guys, the Reformed Two Kingdoms guys, they're, they're, they're up here. And, and this would see um, this separation, that you've got the, the sphere of politics and the state and government, and then you have the sphere of the church, and those two things are separate. And as a Christian, you're part of this, you're part of this, the, the kingdom of God, the city of God, and you work there, and the mission of the church is to preach the gospel and make disciples. And then there's the state, which has its role and its responsibilities in this age, and the two things don't overlap. So as a Christian, you serve in the church, you serve in the, in the sphere of the world as well, but you do that you don't do that in order to change it and transform it. You just do it because that's what because you're a citizen of the state and citizens are called to serve the state and that's what you do. So there's it's very different from this which seeks seeks to kind of build institutions and take over institutions. This would see the institutions of the world and the structure of the church as two very separate things. So it's interesting to think about where do you fit? And why do you fit there? Now, of course, all of us can say, well, we're right here in the middle in the perfect balance. Um, but, but, but where do you fit and, 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 and why, do you, why do you sit there? It's a helpful thing to think about. We could, actually, we could just do a quick show of hands. It's very unfair. Not gonna, you're not allowed to be in the middle. So who feels there more this kind of quadrant? Anybody more seeker-sensitive? One, two. Who feels there more kind of religious rights, transforming culture. Yeah, quite a few. Who feels more Amish? <laughs> Nobody. This really, this, this, really, this really appeals to me. I'd love to go and live with a bunch of horses and, yeah. And who feels they're more kind of Lutheran, a bit more separating out the spheres of church and the world? Okay, that's, that's pretty much what I expected, so. Great, thank you. Where am I? Uh, so you're not allowed to ask me that, it's not fair. Um, I'm right in the middle. <laughs> To be honest, I was swung around, so not not that one. Um, more that I can see the the appeal and the power of this. So I think I think theologically, there's actually an awful lot of strength about uh, this one. I think in terms of how we do church life practically, there's an awful lot about this one. And in terms of personal temperament, I'd be Amish. <laughs> <laughs> Amish, sorry, my British accent. No I'm, no, I'm not, not Amish because I'm saying Amish. Amen, amen, tomato, tomato. Right, two key verses, Romans 13, 4, 1 Peter 2, 13. He is God's servant to do you good, the authority, the governor, the king, the president. 1 Peter 2, 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted amongst men. Three principles, broad principles I want to talk about. First one is that government serves God. Um, So there's a picture of Brother Young. Any people familiar with Brother Young? Wrote a book called The Heavenly Man a few years ago. He talks in that book about how he spoke in the West once, and a Christian told me, I've been praying for years that the communist government in China will collapse so Christians can live in freedom. This is not what we pray. We never pray against our government or call down curses on them. Instead, we have learned that God is in control of both our own lives and the government we live under. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, the government will be on his shoulders. God has used China's government for his own purposes, molding and shaping his children as he sees fit. 
Instead of focusing our prayers against any political system, we pray that regardless of what happens to us, we will be pleasing to God. Don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects his love and power. This is true freedom. An incredibly stirring declaration. And um, as a comfortable Westerner, I would never feel in any position to criticize Brother Young. But I think probably that is slightly too passive. So I really thought about this I mean, a number of years ago. I was particularly looking at the Psalms, at the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms of cursing. And years ago, probably about 10 years ago, I was in South Africa and I preached on, at PJ's church on Psalm 58, which is about corrupt rulers smash the teeth in their mouths. And then PJ and I went up to Zimbabwe, and this is when things were really bad in Zim with all that was happening there. And PJ asked me to preach the same sermon to a bunch of Zimbabwean black African pastors. And I said, there's no way I, as a white English guy, can come and preach this in Zim. And he said, no, do and it was a kind of a liberating moment because they'd all been very passive in the face of oppression. And it wasn't suddenly that we were saying, let's go on the streets and tear down the Mugabe regime, but a kind of a spiritual authority to actually pray, God, would you smash the teeth of the oppressor? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis just a week before the end of the Second World War, said, the mission of government to serve Christ is its inescapable destiny. Government serves Christ no matter whether it is conscious or unconscious of this mission, or true or untrue to it. If it is unwilling to fulfill this mission, then through the suffering of the church, it renders service to the witness of the name of Christ. Such is the close and indissoluble relation of government to Christ. It cannot, in either case, evade its task of serving Christ. It serves him by its very existence. That's a massively comforting statement when we see corruption coming. Uh, the ultimate example of that, of course, is the cross. The cross was a political failure. Pilate was meant to release Jesus under the terms of Roman law. He didn't. It was a political failure, but God used political failure for the sake of gospel advance and the saving of us. Government always serves God in the end. Second principle, obedience is for the sake of Jesus. We obey Jesus for the Lord's sake, as Peter says. Karl uh, Barth, uh, who was involved in resisting the Nazis in the Second World War, said that Christian conscience demands that we should submit to authority Clearly, this is because in this authority, we're dealing indirectly, but in reality, with the authority of Jesus Christ. That's a very helpful verse when it comes to the practical stuff of paying taxes and speeding on the highway. Who do we obey? Why do we obey? Well, in the end, I'm obeying because I'm obeying Jesus. That's really where my obedience is directed. Third broad principle is the church, I believe, does have some responsibility for the state. And what we have to decide is, is that a kind of a more Lutheran passive responsibility where we just serve the state as citizens? Or is it a more kind of Calvinistic active responsibility where we seek to be actively engaged and in some way see some transformation in the structures of the state? A good example of that is, uh, it was always good to go back to the Second World War, so obviously a primary example. So Bonhoeffer and Barth and others formed what was called the Confessing Church, which stood in opposition to the generality of the church in Germany, almost all the church in, in Germany just capitulated to the Nazi philosophy. The confessing church stood against that and said, no, to be true actually to the state, we need to be true to Christ. We can't allow Nazi principles to dictate what we do in the church. Christ is our Lord. So there's a kind of an active engagement in the state. And one of the arguments, potentially, one of the, how, did, how did Nazism happen? Germany was the most 
philosophically sophisticated, the most cultured nation in the world. How did a, the most cultured nation in the world become a Nazi nation? A part of the explanation seems to be that Lutheranism, with its separation of church and state, has actually encouraged a passivity. You just do what the authorities say. And that meant that people were geared up not to oppose tyranny, but actually just to go along with it. Five ways, then, in which we might be active. And I realize I'm already over my time, so I'm going to go quick, quick, quick. First thing is to pray. First Timothy 2, pray for those in authority. And I think, actually, the more corrupt a government comes, the more we should pray for it. The tendency is the more corrupt, the more we back off and just condemn. But I think the counsel of Scripture is the more corrupt, the more you pray. Think about the instructions that uh, Peter and Paul gave. Nero was in charge when they gave those instructions about obeying and submitting and honoring and praying. Um, we're not quite under a Nero yet. Second thing we can do is to surprise those in power. I think part of the reason that Paul and Peter gave the instructions they did to the communities they were writing to is that the anticipation amongst the authorities would have been that this strange Jewish sect was going to cause trouble. So weird religious group are proclaiming a dead man is alive. These are going to be troublemakers. And Paul and Peter say, be model citizens. And one of the things that I think as evangelicals often we're not good at is responding positively to those in authority. We tend to be much better at complaining about things we don't like rather than looking for opportunities to praise. So when things are done well, to write a letter, to make a phone call, to say thank you for that. And uh, I think we need to be, certainly in the UK, uh, in the UK we're much better at complaining than praising. It's part of our national psyche. Um, but we need to be much better at, at surprising those in power by doing good things and praising good things. Um, just a quick illustration. When I moved to the town I'm in now, I, I got an appointment to go and see our local member of parliament. And uh, when I went in to see him, he was kind of defensive because everybody who goes to see him is complaining. And I just said, I'm not, I've got no complaints. I just want to come and meet you and ask if there's any way in which I can pray for you. And just kind of could see him relaxing. Politicians are used to people being hostile. If we can be friendly, that, that's a great thing. Um, third thing is there are times when we resist. Greg is from South Africa, history of apartheid. That's a very, we won't have time to explore that in detail today. Uh, often the church failed dramatically in South Africa when it came to this. What should Christians have done in terms of resisting the tyranny of apartheid? In the States, your history a very, compl very complex racial history here. Again, often the church has been compromised rather than being the church it should have been. Uh, at what point should the church resist? Um, fundamental American question, 4th of July, war of independence or war of rebellion? Take your pick. Um, <laughs> perhaps shouldn't get into that one. Um, <coughs> suddenly he's lost the room. Uh, but if you, th if you think about the example of Brother Young, so he's saying we don't pray for tyranny to lift, but he himself in his story talks about times he's escaped from jail and God's opened the door for him, literally and metaphorically. Or think about the apostles at times being sprung from jail or the, or the apostle Paul saying, hey, you can't flog me because I'm a Roman citizen. There are times when the saints do resist. How do we know when to resist? It's obviously a massively complex question, but the fundamental thing to me seems to be what we see in Acts 4, where the apostles are arrested and said, you must not speak in this name anymore, and they say, should we obey men or God? So to me, the absolute baseline seems to be if when our religious liberty 
is curtailed so that we cannot speak the word of God, that is a point of resistance. We have to say no. And that, that might look different. So it might look, as Andrew's just described in areas of sexuality, that in the UK, you can't lead a political party and be a Christian because of our understanding of sexuality. For me, that's a point of resistance. It is a blood issue where you say, no, we, are, we do have to speak about this. We do have to resist. Fourth thing, then, is to engage in politics. Uh, when Jesus announced his ministry in Luke 4, it was a political statement. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was a political manifesto, as well as a spiritual one. It was, it was a political statement with political consequences. It was politicians who put Jesus to death because they recognized their authority was being challenged. Jesus is a king who's establishing his kingdom. So I think there's a, a whole spectrum of appropriate Christian responses about how we actively engage in politics. The most basic, if you live in a democracy, cast your vote. That seems to me to be a sim simple act of obedience to Jesus, that I go and vote. And I know rec in our recent elections, both in the UK and the US, that has been difficult. Who do I vote for? And there have been times, well, there have been once certainly when I just wrote none of the above. I know here in the States you can write names in. But for me, I wanted to be obedient to Jesus, which, which meant voting. I couldn't in conscience vote, vote for any of the candidates, so I just put none of the above on my ballot paper. Um, and then, final thing, sorry, this is very sketchy, but the guys will fill in the gaps, is to remember that the church has a unique role. There's things the state can't do but the church can. And the quote I've found most consistently helpful to me in this is one by Bill Hybels uh, in his book, Courageous Leadership. And uh, whatever you might think about other aspects of the way that, that Bill Hybels has built a church, he, in terms of getting leadership, he's awesome. And uh, during Bill Clinton's presidency, he was um, in Washington each month with Bill Clinton through all the ups and downs of the Clinton presidency. And he says this, For eight years during the decade of the 90s, I went to Washington, D.C. every month to meet in the foremost centers of power with some of the highest elected officials in our country. What I discovered was not how powerful these people are, but how limited their power really is. All they can actually do is rearrange the yard markers in the playing field of life. They can't change a human heart. They can't heal a wounded soul. They can't turn hatred into love. They can't bring about repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, or peace. They can't get to the core problem. But there is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers. It offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of the world. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. To this day, the potential of the local church is almost more than I can grasp. No other organization on earth is like the church. Nothing even comes close. That has been kind of a, such a helpful passage for me to come back to again and again, to remember when I feel a bit despairing about politics and government and the state, remember the unique potential of what we're part of as members of the church. And that's helpful for those in our churches who have very little, 
no political engagement other than casting their vote, and it's helpful for those who, like Claude, have been in the foremost centres of power, remembering the uniqueness of what the church does by the grace of Jesus Christ. That is my very brief si summary. Uh, we can probably turn some lights on now, as uh, we won't need the slides, and I'll hand over to my friends. Thank you. Cool. Uh, just to give you a bit of a history, so I'm coming at uh, coming at this as a, a local church pastor speaking to other church leaders in uh, dealing with issues of uh, the day in terms of politics. And uh, I need to give you a bit of a history to our country. I don't know if you are aware of it, but our country, you would have heard of all the bad stuff, and it's largely because of a colonial past. Um, and then about 60 years ago, a lot of the um, racial uh, stuff was written into law. And so we had a, we've got a country where we've got this ugly past of white supremacy. Um, and we have a very educated, so, so at the height of it, for every dollar spent on a black person's education, $17 was spent on a white person's education. Just to, that, that, that. That stat will help you understand a bit of our history. Um, due to an armed resistance, as well as uh, many other nations in the world putting sanctions on us, we were forced to come to a place where there was uh, a democratic election for the first time in 1994, for which we're very grateful. And so that's when our country came to freedom from the white supremacist government. In 1994, everyone knows Nelson Mandela, he was our first uh, president, and uh, the post-apartheid landscape is way better than it was ever before, but we still have significant challenges. As a nation, we still have one of the highest Gini coefficients, which means um, the, 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 the distance between the wealthiest and the poorest in our nation is very, very wide. Other countries like Brazil would be close to us, but we are extreme in terms of uh, some people in the nation living in a very first world environment and others living in absolute poverty. Um, sadly, we haven't been able to transform our education and health systems fast enough, and so 23 years on, we are still... I mean, you can't have hundreds of years of... Um, discrimination and uh, inequality turned around in 20. So it's kind of, we, we're swimming against a strong tide and we still have loads of distance to cover. As a result of this, it's very interesting because a lot of the millennials, I was at the seminar on the millennials yesterday, many of those who are actually born freeze, so they've been born since 1994, are at the forefront of anger and frustration with the lack of transformation in our country. And the reason is, is they've been born free, they've had access to education, they've had access to um, opportunity, but they look at their parents and their grandparents whose situation hasn't changed. And so the government hasn't been able to de uh, deliver on its promises, which is quite common with politicians, right? Um, but the government had promised housing and healthcare and all these kind of things, but they haven't yet been able to deliver on that, and so there's a growing anger and unrest. 
Where we currently stand is that um, our democratically elected government, the African National Congress, the main party, has had huge support since um, 1994, mainly because they were the liberation movement that kind of delivered um, the liberation. And uh, they've almost not had to do much work to stay in power. We've had four free and fair elections since then. But for the first time, they are coming under huge pressure because of the vast amounts of corruption um, being experienced. And so the young, educated people are looking and seeing 70-year-old um, uh, politicians who are building houses for themselves on the state's dollar to the tune of like $20 million. Um, there's vast looting and stuff going on. And they are looking and saying, but what about my grandmother who's living in a shack? And so we've got a, a, a very unhappy population at the moment. Our president has over 700 charges against him of criminality. Um, we have, he has slowly taken over institutions of state. So um, the public prosecutor has been a, a bastion uh, in our nation and has investigated him and investigated many other officials and all of this stuff is in the public domain but because the police and uh, ministry is under his control we don't get all of this coming to the fore and so it's an interesting place to live we recently had our own WikiLeaks which is a an email leaks uh, which which are showing that many of the current cabinet ministers are in those positions because they've helped the friends of the president. And so we have an Indian family who now owns our country. They come, came from India 20 years ago and basically now own our president and uh, much of our country. I find, found myself in the last couple of months as a leader of a team, um, and as I said, our church is really diverse. We've got a lot of young black born freeze. We also have a lot of white, wealthy, middle, middle class is always a bit of an understatement, right? Rich white guys. Um, and so we've been having to marry how we respond to much of what's going on in the country. We've been under a huge amount of pressure to be out leading our people in protest marches, of which there have been many. So I, I don't know if you saw recently, but in Brazil there were massive protests that led to the overthrow of that government. And so our people have been out in the streets. We've had shutdowns. It's been crazy. It's been amazing in one sense to see civil society unite against injustice and corruption. But on the other side, it's been, it's been quite sad that actually nothing has come of it in terms of seeing any change in the leadership. So. How have we processed this as, uh, as a community? And I think <coughs> we've pretty much landed, I'm in the top half of Matt's graph. I, you know, I've got that book on my shelf. I should have read it six months ago. <laughs> but I'm definitely in the top half, and I swing between these two sides. I, you can't be a church leader in South Africa and not appreciate the huge value that the traditional liberation theology-based guys, uh, the huge role they played in the apartheid movement, and sadly, the silence of many of our, my people, the, the, the reformed evangelicals, what's that? 
you know, oh, that's right. how, how quiet they were through apartheid. So the challenge is we've got this hangover of the past where for many of us white guys who have benefited hugely from that were not vocal enough in fighting apartheid because of our, 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 on, 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 because of our Christian beliefs. But now we're facing another injustice and now we're wanting to do something, but we don't have the capital or the equity to be at the front of those marches, in my, in my view. And uh, so we have a, a lot of our people wanting to be out there, wanting to be led out there, and some of us are wanting to be out there, but unsure as to whether we should be out there because of the hangover of the past. And so the more we've looked at the New Testament, the more we've settled that the one thing we are clear about is that we need to pray for our leaders, not call for them to go. I mean, the context Matt painted of Nero, we, we are called to pray for our leaders, not call for them to go. But there is a tightrope to walk when there are issues of justice at play because one of the imperatives of the apostolic imperatives is that we care for the poor and that we stand for those who don't have a voice. And so we caught between these two things. I'll give you our solution just briefly and then hand over. But we felt that although God is sovereign over all creation, as church leaders, our sphere is mainly the sphere of religion, let's call it that. Although we preach a gospel that seeks to influence all spheres, including the sphere of politics. And uh, so although some clergymen, for want of a better word, are bivocational in terms of being called to be both polit political activists and those who lead churches, not all are. And the danger is that we want to be relevant, and so we feel a pressure from our people to be heavily politically involved, um, and it may not be everybody, everybody's uh, calling in terms of the church leaders around. Yeah, don't hear what I'm not saying. Obviously, in a context like ours, you cannot be apolitical. We need to preach a gospel that transforms the heart of men and women, that causes them to be salt and light in politics and education in every sphere that we're involved in. So when we had to make the decision, do we call the members of our church to march or not? We answered this with five points. Firstly, we felt our role was to highlight that there is a problem, that there's injustice and there's wrong going on. Secondly, we felt called to remind our people that we are all called to be agents of redemption. So we cannot be passive. We need to honor God in the way that we live. Thirdly, we wanted to clarify that what we were seeing was a departure from creational norms within our political system. And we wanted to provide a biblical vision of what restoration in this system would look like. Fourth thing we wanted to do was to exhort them to prayerfully consider how God would want them to respond. And we prayed as a church. We called people to pray. We prayed not curses on them, but prayed for our leaders that God would um, bring them, give them wisdom, bring them to repentance where needed, etc. But we asked people to seek a response according to their own conscience. And then finally, as leaders, we shared what we felt called to do so that our lives may be an example to those that follow us, but we didn't go so far as to say, okay, we're going as a church on Saturday and we are all going out pro to protest. 
I personally didn't feel that that was, well, as a team, we felt that was not the response. I hope that's helpful as a church leader. I think I'll stop there. Give time. Thank you, Greg. It is, um, I'm going to make two comments about what you guys said, and then I'll, I'll dive into a couple of points as well. Um, what I find amazing is our heritage, our history as a nation, started here. And when I hear the discussion about a member of parliament stepping down because he felt that it was inconsistent with his exercising his faith, the immediate thing that came out, I mentioned to Matt outside was, what would Wilberforce say about that? Uh, because th I recall, if you've ever watched the movie Amazing Grace, there's this amazing discussion between William Wilberforce and John Newton where Wilberforce is struggling with that very same question. And he's saying, my faith is inconsistent with this public service duty. And Newton's response to him is, you can do both. And so we need to pray for our brother. Um, I'm not going to judge his decision, but when we have believers withdrawing from the culture, we're ceding that ground, and that is deeply concerning. South Africa, um, as a young believer working on Capitol Hill, I was actually a part of a three-member team that traveled to South Africa after the shootings in Utenhage. Uh, a region in the eastern part of, of South Africa where uh, that actually triggered the U.S.'s response to apartheid. And so I was a part of a team that wrote the report that led our Congress to impose sanctions on South Africa. But the, what I was most touched by is my time there was with believers and helping them to see what was going on right under their eyes that they didn't see. I met with people of the conservative party, the, the leading party, uh, Christians who were the wealthy, the head of a major bank there who is a, a godly brother, uh, sitting in a country club where I was the only non-white seated in that, rest, in that country club. And I asked them a question. They asked me, what can we do to change our nation? And I looked at them and says, answer me your question, will you? Look around you and tell me what you observe. None of them saw that. And I pointed that out to them, and their heart sunk. And I said, let me ask you this question. What do you know about the woman who's washing your diapers, your baby's nappies, who's fixing your meals, who's caring for your children, your elderly? What do you know about them? Very little. When we withdraw from the culture and cease to engage it, we allow for these sort of things to happen. And I, on that chart, it's funny, I think probably many in our country who are part of a reformed, uh, theologically oriented, we are typically on those two axes, the lower right, the upper left. We tend to vacillate on those. Rarely will you find us in the liberation theology. That is the social church that it really comes to. So you don't find that very often. Our goal is to get to that center. And I want to speak to you briefly about that and then engage you. Uh, but before I do, I want to mention also yesterday in our country we had an event take place that some of you may be aware of, some of you may not. Uh, but on Tuesday I was downtown. Um, I still engage our government personally and directly. And I was coming back and I had an impression from the Lord, a reminder of the fun times I had working and being on the baseball fields down on the mall where 
many congressional staffers go down and play softball games after work. Well, yesterday you had a situation where you had members of Congress, their staffs, on that field playing, and you had someone come in and kill, uh, shoot and injure many. And I believe there was one person who died, a guard who died. And my heart was grieved by that because what we're finding is a breakdown in our society and how we're dealing with our differences. And so I want to speak to you as the church leaders on terms of what can we do. And just a brief, brief narrative. Um, and, and my studies of the scriptures reveal that there are three institutions in edi every individual's life that God has appointed. First, the family. Secondly, the church. And the third institution is government. In every individual family, you have those three institutions. Those institutions were created to work in a symbiotic relationship. Where one is out of balance, the other two are supposed to step in and provide and care and help guide that. So if the family is breaking down, who's supposed to step in and help them? The church. To a degree, government where the church is not. If the church is not doing well, who's supposed to step in and work with them? the families, the members of those congregations, the elders in their churches. If the government is breaking down, who's supposed to step in and address it? The church and individuals. So we, we have those institutions. And uh, my philosophy has been largely that um, I, I love the, the question, the positive and the negative. Those are very two. I do both. On the negative side, I believe that the role, my role when serving in government was not to do good, not to elevate good, my role was to suppress evil, to keep bad legislation from coming forth, to keep the things that are injurious to individuals and to the church from happening. On the positive side, God calls us to be salt and light. The light is what we're supposed to shine to have people drawn to the church. So there's both that negative and positive side of that, and I see that. And, and two scriptures I want to mention, and I'll stop because I, I think it's more important that we answer questions, is that you know, the, uh, Jeremiah 39, 4 through 7, um, it says, you know, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into ex exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, and on, goes on, talks about uh, bear, multiply. And verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God is very clear that we are to be engaged where we are as a church, as a people. When we cease to be engaged, we see things happen like governments run amok. We see corruption that occurs. We see uh, violence take place so where the church is not engaged. And the second scripture that we, at least in this country, we, we refer to quite often as we talk about civic engagement is in Matthew, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, that we are, we are all called to be salt and light. You are the salt of the, the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It goes on to talk about that. Well, salt has many properties. One of them is purification. One of them is getting into whatever it is dealing with and burning out impurities. We're called to be salt. We're called to engage our culture and purify it in a sense, not that our job is to, 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 as you see the extreme position down here, is that we're called to take over government. No, we're called to influence government. 
we're called to be that moral voice that speaks to what is godly versus what is not. And so that's the balance that we have to cross. And so just a couple things I would encourage us to consider. First of all, prayer is the most important thing we can do as we seek to engage government. Secondly, we do need to engage carefully, but we also need to realize that God has called us to be missional. We're called to go into the cities. We're called to populate and, and to, to uh, participate in its activities, its culture, all of that. And a part of that is politics. And then lastly, some of us are called to serve either outside of government, that is in political parties and political activities, inside of government, that is also in terms of uh, sometimes um, working um, in an administration, serving in those positions, but we're all called to serve in our communities, which is an important part of being salt and light. So I'll stop there, and I know we've got many things we can talk about, but I wanted you to see the connection that the three of us have, the all of us have in our local communities through our local churches. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.